And I think this is where I really got in a habit of getting uncomfortable, mm. right? Because I was, I was forced into being uncomfortable here, but I just did it anyway. Like I woke mm. up every day, I was like, I'm uncomfortable, with this, but I would just do it anyways. And mm. eventually I realized that I could do it and it was going to be okay. And it wasn't like some horrible thing happened or something like that. It wasn't always the best. It, wasn't, it didn't need to be. I just had to show up and do it. It didn't need to be these huge big feelings the lowest or the highest or whatever could just you know show up and do things and i learned to just to just be as they say dr keegan caldwell is the founder and managing member of caldwell he is an esteemed business leader with extensive and diverse experience in advising high growth startups and early stage technology companies, as well as established entities to develop robust, high value patent portfolios. Keegan has built his thriving practice around patent protection, patent litigation, post grant proceedings, and patent portfolio strategy and management. He aims to close the knowledge gap with the intellectual property law industry, leading him to develop a practice focused on treating IP as an asset class to achieve business objectives with multiple avenues for an ROI. And more importantly, Keegan is a good friend, somebody I've gotten to know and really love and enjoy spending time with. He's got a great story, a story to becoming a lawyer, a doctor that you would not expect. It was not the traditional path. It was a path filled with addiction and suffering. And he has overcome all of that to really build a beautiful practice and a beautiful life in an industry that is uh, exploding. And I've learned so much from him about life and the importance of intellectual property and the business of intellectual property. So I hope you do too. Keegan, thanks for taking some time to join me on the Gravity Podcast. Yeah, my pleasure, Brett. I'm I'm glad to be here. I'm glad that we can get uh, some time together today. Yeah, me too. I'm I'm really excited actually to hear uh, your story and um, just you know having an opportunity to get to know you a little bit through coach and seeing you work and 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 the success that you're having. Um, and and really, I think you know for me personally, I just like the way you go about it. You know, so it's relatable, and um, you know you're bringing a, a different vibe to uh law <laughs> and you know and and maybe patent in general has that sort of maybe more natural um lane for you to to be unique i don't know but uh <laughs> you're unique in your field for sure and and very relatable and uh yeah i just uh excited to to dive in with you yeah well i'm glad that i get the opportunity to chat today and thanks for having me come on all right so let's uh let's Let's start at the beginning of your journey. I want to know where are you from? What was what was little Keegan like? Your family, just all the kind of tell me about the dynamics of of growing up as a kid. Yeah, I guess I'll start by just saying how um, grateful that I am to be able to do things like this, to be on um, podcast, to be able to be invited on podcast, and a lot of that has been due to the love that I've received from my family. Right, like. Uh, as we'll, we'll talk about today, it hasn't been the most straightforward path to be where I am today. And there's been some definite bumps in the road. And um, and I definitely, you know, had a period of my life where I hurt, hurt a lot of people that I cared about. And uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of those people were the people that were closest to me. And 
but they've always been loving and supportive and uh i'm profoundly grateful for that so now i'll talk trash about them okay so. <laughs> <laughs> oh no that's good, I'm, to, I'm, that's good. <laughs> I, i'm excited to learn more about all of that really because you know i've i learned in doing this podcast there's a lot of um trauma and there's a lot of love and um boy you know both just seem to be pretty common paths for for uh, most people you know yeah. yeah yeah so i i'm the oldest of five kids i was born in uh, mesa arizona or uh, maybe scottsdale i guess we were living in scottsdale i was born in mesa desert samaritan hospital uh, April 20th, 1979. And, uh, but we only lived there for like, well, maybe until I was two years old. And then we moved back to Michigan, which is where my folks grew up, mm-hmm. uh, was in like Southwest Michigan, the Kalamazoo, Michigan area mm-hmm. and, uh, Kalamazoo Grand Rapids. And, uh, and so we had moved back there because they both come from very large, you know, Irish Catholic, families we come from a what i always describe as a long line of overbreeders and uh and so there's just like there's so many of us and, uh, but we're all pretty close and mm-hmm. so um like i think i have 52 first cousins and my my dad was one of nine and mm. my mom was one of seven and then you know so i mean i have more aunts and uncles than i have most people you know family period right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah so wow. there was a lot of us so it made sense for my mom to want you know to want to move back uh to michigan and so that you know that was where i grew up that's where i went to elementary school middle school and in high school there and mm-hmm. like i said i was the oldest of five my mom worked at uh, the post office i think since she was 18 mm-hmm. i think so her whole literal her literal whole career Mm-hmm. post office and uh and then my dad is you know, like a skilled tradesman right mm-hmm. so he had worked as a carpenter for i mean things were definitely tough when we first moved from uh from arizona to michigan and i was very young then so i barely remember it but once i get to the age of right around like five until 10 years old like it was still it was definitely like a Financially tough time. My dad mainly worked as a um, framer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for like on a, on a crew of framers, uh, you know, building uh, houses or apartment complexes or whatever. And and they kept having babies, and so <laughs> it was a it was a lot of children to take care of on sure um, uh, without without that much money, and uh, and so. Uh, definitely things were tight, but when you're a kid, you don't really have any perspective of that, right? It's just, Mm -hmm. that's what you know. You don't have that much perspective until you really, you know, we had like this tiny little house on a nice little street. Things were reasonably, I don't know, normal growing up, I guess. I mean, Mm -hmm. there was, uh, I mean, it was like the early 80s. I think that there was a lot more like, maybe open air substance use. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Well, tell me about like, you know, <laughs> I, well, I am curious. So, so yeah, you know, you say that uh, you were a kid and, you know, times were tough, you know, for your parents, but you know, they yep. seem to do a fairly good job of, of, I don't know, keeping that from you or, or not making that feel 
too um, much a part of the experience. I don't know. Is that is that true? I mean, do you, when you think about it, was there a sense that really, you know, it was tough or what, what was it like? And, and maybe just expand a little bit more on like really. what you not were like. I, not until I was in high school. You okay. Know, until I was in high school that then I like started to realize that I was like, oh yeah, I was like, I guess that we're, things are a little tighter for us at home than a lot of uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so, so tell me more about like what kind of kid you were, what you were, you were interested in or into and, you know, sure substance, you know, is there, sure. you know, you start to I mean, party act out, like what, tell me a little bit about it. Yeah. So I was, I, I've always been an outgoing kid, you know, chatted up with everybody, you know, that was something that I definitely inherited from my dad, you know, he's got the the gift of gab, you know, mm. uh, for better or for worse, whenever, <laughs> like when I bring him to the city, for instance, like when he comes to Boston, I, you know, I have to be like that. You don't have to talk with every homeless person for like, <laughs> like he just can't help himself. You know, yeah, like, hey, how you doing? Right. What's going on? You're like, <laughs> like, you don't have to stop giving me all these guys. Money. Uh-huh. He's just, you know, he's the man of the people. You know, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what he likes. He like, and he'll connect with anyone. You know, and yeah. I think that that's just part of the gift of being from a really big family. And so you end yeah. up having people that are from really all walks of life within your family that you're very comfortable with. You know, yeah. so because you'll have people that are, you know, have done very well and are quite successful, and then you have others that you know have uh, very that have maybe faced a lot of different challenges, self-inflicted or otherwise, and. uh but you can still find ways to connect with them. And so I think mm-hmm. that was actually, I'm grateful for having a big family. There was a, there was mm-hmm. a before I maybe wasn't like as a teenager, cause they're everywhere. Yeah. And, uh, you could never get away with anything, right? Mm-hmm. Cause there was always someone around every corner. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I played, you know, I played sports and did, you know, even though we didn't have a lot, we didn't really go. Right? So we, I played sports, you know, I pl- mainly played, I think I was the best at hockey, uh, mm-hmm. and I played at baseball, you know, into high school, um, and I played tennis also in high school, and you know, I even played like a little bit of football. But I didn't play football in high school. I just played that up until high school, and mm-hmm. then uh, and then I stopped that at that point. But uh, things, I mean, ultimately did change for me. Part of my story arc is it involves substance abuse, and uh, when I I was like a good student, right? So mm-hmm. like, it was like a, you know, pretty much like an A student with some B's sprinkled in here and there. Um, and by the time I got to high school, I think I just wasn't feeling particularly challenged. And I also think, and this is maybe, this is like decades of analysis. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> of course. I'm relying on to, to make these sort of uh, overarching like assertions at this point. But yeah. I would say that my, I just didn't know. I didn't have uh, great tools for dealing with like general life emotions, right? Yeah. Which I don't think many of us do as a teenager, anyways. But I, I agree. Yeah, maybe it was a little, maybe a little underprepared. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe some other folks had a little bit more tools in the toolbox. So yeah. I just, uh, um, well, well, let me ask you a question about that because, uh, boy, I. I I have been saying for years now that we just don't teach children the right things in school and that um, we teach 
nothing about emotion. We, we teach nothing about um, really life. I mean, we, we teach, you know, things that are sort of skills at best, you know, um, and maybe there's some learning in there. But most of my education was a, was uh, about life through living, you know, and and the academics just, you know, never really landed with me. And so, you know, when you say that uh, you didn't have those skills and maybe yeah. some people were better prepared, you know, and, and I know this is in hindsight and after a lot of work and analysis, why do you think that is? Why do you think that was? I think part of it was because we had a big family and I had two, like, you know, my parents are very hard workers, right? Like mm-hmm. not only, you know, one of them always had two full-time jobs. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, and that's not, that's not an exaggeration. Like mm-hmm. um, there was a long period where my dad worked as a framer during the day. And then he worked a second full-time job at night as a janitor. Mm-hmm. And then there was also, uh, or he'd be doing side jobs or, you know, all kinds. He was always doing side jobs, no matter mm-hmm. what. And then uh, um, there was also a long period of, you know, like over the decade where my mom worked at uh, the post office during the day where she worked her whole career. And then she also worked for, um, for Pfizer on mm. the line. She worked third shift on the line at Pfizer. And then, so from 11 until seven, and then she'd go drive to her post office. She was the postmaster of the plenty post office. And then she'd work all day there and go sleep for a few hours and get up and do it again mm. at 11 o'clock at night. So, mm-hmm. um, I think that with five children and, um, sports mm-hmm. and all, you know, all these things going on that I just, you know, didn't maybe get like one-on-one yeah i guess gotcha. help deal with some of those feelings i don't think it was like intentional or anything sure like that, but it was just it was just a you know a consequence of the circumstance yeah, yeah. circumstance yeah exactly. yeah uh i was thinking about it like this morning because there was this uh this rapper that was shot in this group called yeah. Ghost or whatever and yeah outside of a bowling alley like yesterday or the day before yeah. i saw that and, yeah. uh, and like i love a couple of their songs they're great right mm-hmm. and uh but there's like every like few months, there's like some new guy like getting shot or something over something like stupid, like playing dice or right. it's an ego thing, you know, right. is what it comes down to that I think, you know, it's like someone's got a puff out and we're like trying or someone's trying to compensate for something that they didn't have anyways. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, to me, and I know this is like oversimplifying things, but I was just like, I just feel like there's this element of love that's missing from these, you know, like we just, yeah. if there was more of a teaching and focus, like you said, you know, like in the beginning, yeah. like are we teaching the right things to people? Like I feel personally, cause I practice this each day in my life, um, being focused on loving all people. Yeah. That, uh, if we can, you know, I think in general as, as humans, just focus on, you know, finding the commonalities between each other rather than focusing on the differences mm-hmm. in my own personal life. I've gotten so much freedom from that than mm-hmm. to be focused on like, well, I don't know. I can't think of a good example. But like, yeah. Brett's yeah. Got a cool rug. I, you know, I wish I had that rug or something. Like that. <laughs> right. Well, it, it, it's funny. I mean, that's a, a good example because, like, I think what happens, even if you're aware of it and you have that belief, which I share with you you can see how things like smuggle their way in and you're like, well, but, 
if I do this and I have that and then, you know, and, and, and then you get into the competitive situation or right. It, it, your ego finds a way to yeah. smuggle its way back in. And, and I think you're really onto something that the, that core foundation of love and uh, learning about how to, you know, be in the world and be with yourself and be with all of your emotions is really lacking and it's leading to all kinds. It has for many, many years, you know, but it's, it's, it's leading to a lot of uh, mental health problems and, and, you know, tragedy, death and yeah. tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was in the same thought stream that I was having this morning. It wasn't just like with, you know, like these young hip hop guys, like, you know, shooting each other all the time. It was like, you know, you can go a few how you know, a few blocks. I mean, I live in a very nice neighborhood in a little brownstone and in Boston, but you can go like a half mile away from my house. And there's a huge encampment of folks mm. that are out on the street that, you know, it's just addicts everywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and folks that are, you know, like definitely substance dependent and the police are sitting there waiting for people to OD and then they'll go, you know, Narcan them or whatever and bring them back mm -hmm. to life or whatever. But I think that's the same thing. And from my own personal experience, I think that a lot of that applies because I think like in our core as humans, we just want to love and be loved. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and that we, if we're not getting that, then we're, sometimes we seek things outside of ourselves. Right. To, to get some comfort or, you know, self-medicate as they say, or whatever it is. Yeah. Right? And, uh, and I think that, you know, often it's a slippery slope. Oh, dear you know, boy. Yeah. The next thing you know, you end up, you know, out in a tent on Mass Ave here in Boston or, you know, you know wherever. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And as you say, it's a really, I think that today more than ever, that the stakes are really high, you know, yeah. and like with so the flooding of fentanyl in yeah. the streets of America and probably all over the world, that is it's, you know, people don't know in their, yeah. in their body. Like, is this the day that this is my last day? You know what I yeah. mean? And uh, it's really, I heard something recently and I don't know, you, you would probably know, but it was that like more young people are losing their lives to like o overdoses than any other, than anything else right now. Is that, yeah. have you heard that? Well, I, I just had Beth Weinstock on my podcast. She lost her son um, to uh, fentanyl. Yeah, you know, Murder really is what it is, and uh, yeah. yeah, fentanyl, not just drug overdoses, and and she really makes the distinction that they're murders, which which is right because, you know, people don't think when they're taking a Xanax or sniffing a line of coke yeah. that they're going to be dying. That's it, right, right, yeah. and so um, <clears throat> fentanyl deaths is the leading cause of death, um, ages eighteen to forty five in the country over. Everything. Yeah. And that doesn't even take into account the other drug overdoses. That's just fentanyl deaths. So over a hundred thousand people are going to die from fentanyl deaths in this country. You know, it's it's like wild. So, you know, there there that's a whole separate issue, but you're right. I mean, what people are doing to feel something that's missing. Right is is you know and 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 you and I both know being in a bunch of you know entrepreneurial rooms and masterminds sometimes there are healthier addictions than others right mm -hmm. you know if you're addicted to your work 
I mean, maybe you could have a heart attack. It's probably not going to kill you. You know, if you're addicted to Instagram, it could screw some things up. But you know, if if you're if you're into pills and powders, I mean, today, you know, there's a decent chance you're dying. Yeah, your life expectancy isn't great either way. Absent the like a thing like fentanyl, but with that, when you throw that into the equation, then it's just if the numbers go crazy. Right, yeah. your, your odds are your odds are not great, and you don't yeah. know. When that, I think I, you know, I definitely agree with that murder assessment. That like, because it doesn't make sense. It's for some, I know. As an entrepreneur, it doesn't really make sense. Oh, it's the worst business right? model you're just ever. Like, why are you? You know, it's like why would you kill your clients? Yeah, yeah, it's the craziest thing ever. It's, I mean, it's like it's, the one thing yeah. I know in my own business is like if I do a good job for ten people, like one person tells. Right. right. If I do a bad job for one person, they tell everybody. Right. 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 We're like, if you kill, if you're killing your clients, there's no repeat business. You know what I right. mean? So it's like, we want to treat everyone good so we can do this thing for decades. Yeah. It's it's like, it's, it's hard to make sense of. Yeah. Maybe it's. Well, let me. There's always pain, and people just keep coming back. But anyways, that's yeah, what. maybe that could be it too. It's it's mm-hmm. it's sick, and you know maybe that sickness originates at somebody else's pain. But yeah. but let me circle back around to your yeah, we got off journey. Track. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, I look. We're so both I'm in passionate. high school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I mean, it's fine because you know this is you know the the way I like to just be in conversation with people, and we have shared passion there. Uh, yeah. But I but I I'm curious to hear what led you to this passion and you talked about your own substance abuse. So maybe you could just expand on that. I'm, I'm happy to chat about it. And I, and I feel I, I should even like note like a disclaimer at the beginning that I feel like a personal early responsibility at this point in my life to share a little bit about it. Or for like a long time, I think that I was, I wanted to fly underneath the radar, you know, cause I was like piecing things together and I didn't want the stigma of having those things in my life. And, you know, was maybe getting my own company with that. Mm-hmm. Let alone the company of being able to do that, but I've you know I've been very fortunate and have really turned things around and um, have had a lot of business successes. And now I feel like on behalf of a lot of the folks that helped me along the way that I need to speak up and let things know how bad things got and how mm-hmm. good they can get. So, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, I was you know in high school like anyone else. People are, you know, drinking and smoking a little bit of weed here and there. And uh, um, there was a lot of drinking in my house. And so I didn't, and I, and so it wasn't real popular. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be a big drinker, right? Like mm-hmm. I thought in a negative life. Other kids were getting high and drinking way before I was. I was like kind of a little nerdy, you know, still cool, but kind of a little nerdy in the sense that like I, I don't know. I was just more of a late bloomer, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, um, I don't remember. I mean, I just had like, you know, actually a guy who's still like my literal, you know, like my best friend today. Uh, he and I, you know, got high together for the first time, I think. When we were like 15, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, um, but then I think the difference was that it was clear that some things were different for me in the way that I, use substances like right away right like i mean like i was like i remember like getting high for the first time smoking weed and then being like this is the most amazing thing in the world and for people that smoke weed that's that's fine you know do do your thing whatever uh i'm not judging but uh Mm -hmm. just like even for me like with that 
or with lots of things. It doesn't even have to be a substance. Like sometimes mm-hmm. I just use things in a way that's unhealthy, right? And mm-hmm. so like right away, like I remember like trading like my skateboard for like another bag of weed, like, you know, like mm-hmm. a few weeks later or something like that. And I love skateboarding, right? Mm-hmm. Big thing. And so uh, that was, you know, maybe like an early sign of things being a little bit different for me. But then uh, things progressed for me pretty rapidly. I mean, like by the end of high school, oh, where was I? I started, I was dating this girl and she had a family member that had access to a lot of opiate pain medication, right? Mm-hmm. Profession. And, uh, and she needed help sometimes getting that, and I would help her with that, and she would give me some of the stuff, right? And so that was really how I got going on the opiates. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I really enjoyed that. You know, like I mm-hmm. liked the way that it made me feel. I felt more at ease. I felt more just comfortable with who it was that I was, right? And, uh, you know, and I was like a sharp, good looking kid. I, it, people, I don't think most people like thought twice that, that I had some sort of like substance abuse issue, at least any, you know, most people from the outside, because I, I just didn't look like the typical drug user. Anyways, but things progressed for me pretty rapidly. Right. So like, I'm like, maybe when I'm 15, like that was when I first started smoking weed, but then now I'm like 16 and I'm getting all these, like a script a week of mm-hmm. some opiate pain medication taken 10, 20 of them a day or something like that. And, uh, and then, Eventually, that led to <clears throat> beginning to use to uh, sniff heroin, mm-hmm. and uh, and so started to do that with some degree of frequency. You know, being dependent on opiates. Also, um, basically, by the time that I was supposed to be finishing high school, like I didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. So everyone else finished high school. I didn't. I mean, I didn't drop out of high school, but I just had a couple classes. I just didn't pass, and I never. Mm-hmm finished high school that were like mm-hmm. like government and mm-hmm. like very essential required class for finishing high school right so, right um so that was a drag but and then during my senior year though like i had a friend um a good friend of mine who uh whose dad was a marine and he like picked me up one day and was like you know he like called me and was like hey do you want to smoke a joint you know was like yeah, sure. And so I came over and like listened to Bob Zephyr or something. The car, <laughs> smoking a joint. And then he like pulls into the Marine Corps recruiting center. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I have an appointment I have to go to. And I'm like, I'm not going there. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, and like, I was like, I'll sit in the car, you know? And uh, and he's like, all right, well, whatever, I'm going in. So like he goes in there. He's in for like five minutes. And then I was like, all right, man, I'll go inside. So like mm. I, I go into the Marine Corps recruiting center. And the next thing, you know, we're in there for like three and a half hours. I mean, mm-hmm. the guy that was the main recruiter there, I mean, he could have sold, you know, catch up to a lady in white gloves or something. Mm-hmm. Like, this dude was slick, right? Like, mm-hmm. I went in there, like, reluctant to go in. And by the time I came out, I was like, America, yeah, let's go, you know, right, was, like, right. all fired up. And and we were fired up. We were, we were going to sign up. We were going to take, like, the test that we needed to. And, um, and we did. We, like, went up to Lansing, Michigan and did, like, our physical... Uh, took like the required ASVAB, which is like the this entrance test thing that we need to take. It's like mm-hmm. a written, written test or whatever to figure out what job you might qualify for. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we did those things. And then um, come the following fall, I went off to boot camp, and 
and then things like improved for me, you know, because like I was basically like couch surfing on different friends' couches and it just had, you know, I couldn't hold like a job. I couldn't, I didn't have much, you know, stealing money from family was stealing in general. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You were living an addict's life. I mean, you know, it's not a pretty picture, you know, when you're dependent on drugs and substances, you're going to do all kinds of stuff. You know, I, yeah, I think there's a lot of shame around that and it's really wrong because, you know, it's, it's when you're in it, you know, you're just looking to, you know, survive. Yeah. It's like tunnel vision where it's like, this is the thing that I need. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's the, it's sadly, you know, for better or for worse, uh, it's just where your head is at and it's the only thing that you can really kind of focus on. And, you know, and to that point, you know, like I thought for a long time, I really was in battle when uh, I'll eventually fast forward to this part. But, you know, when I finally decided to get help uh, was after the Marines. But because uh, um, basically, like I joined the Marines and while mm-hmm. I was in the Marines, I was pretty stable, you know, because mm-hmm. there was like a real set. It wasn't like mm-hmm. um, like I went to boot camp and I was definitely sick, mm-hmm. like the first like week of boot camp. But I mean, mm-hmm. So much physical activity, and I was like 18 years old. I mean, right? We had a lot more bounce back then. Yeah, <laughs> than I have now, right? But 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 I was curious about that. So you 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 know you're sniffing heroin and you know popping pills and doing everything, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go straight into boot camp. Did that force you to be clean for some period of time while you were yeah. in the Marines, or were you still yeah. able to get access to stuff? No, for the most part. I wasn't using, but it wasn't that intentional. If that right. Was, it was like, like, like I wasn't like, I'm in recovery now, like I say now. Right. right. It was just like, because I would still, you know, every once in a while, like if the guys went out on the town or something like that, I'd go out with them and get a hotel for the night and have a few beers or whatever. Or, right. or like, uh, honestly, there was a handful of homes on base for, you know, I did some weed or something like that. Right. Like, smoke a little bit of weed or something like that. But I definitely wasn't doing any hard drugs and mm-hmm. um even when i would like go visit home like on leave or anything like that i wasn't mm-hmm. right and so um it provided like you know for some years it provided some additional like just stability and having mm-hmm. uh like a regimen and consistency in my life which turns out actually today i really thrive like mm-hmm. i like chaos and a lot of new challenges and a lot of mm. things happening in my life, but I have a routine. You know, mm-hmm. I, wake up, I get up about the same time every day. Like, you know, I mean, I run every day. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like I go back. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> this is my 306th day in a row running at least a 5K a day. And mm-hmm. go do that. Go do a workout. You know, I usually do like a little bit of meditation or something, usually during my run. Mm-hmm. But uh, at some point, just be reflective and um, and then I get into my day and then I day at work and almost on time with my kids and my wife and try to really be focused on that and not distracted. And mm-hmm. uh, anyways, it's those routines that were really mm-hmm. helpful. I didn't know that when I was mm-hmm. in the Marine Corps. I just figured it was like, I don't know, like just part of, uh, I had no perspective. I was just like a young kid. I just thought, you know, like, okay, well, I'm just like working hard and this is what my job is now. Right. right. Like, uh, and so the short version is that, 
you know, I was in the Marine Corps, I was in the infantry. Um, and then, so, because I know that we have time constraints here, I think mm-hmm. the, the more important part of the story is that when I get out of the service, that's when things kind of fell apart for me, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, from, um, I had like some consistency, I didn't really have like a network of support because I never thought, I didn't think I had a problem or anything, mm-hmm. right? And when mm-hmm. I got out of the service, um, it started to become very apparent, right? And I got out, started, you know, you know, drinking and getting high a little bit again. And the next thing you know, I'm back using opiates again. And the next thing you know, I'm using heroin again. And now I'm using IV, you know, heroin. And, um, and you know, obviously things escalated quickly at this point in using IV heroin, using heroin whatever else, right? But uh, mainly, definitely dependent on opiates. And, uh, and, and there was, you know, I was like working for myself and like building decks and screening porches and stuff. And so I was like, you know, for at least a, a decent amount of time making enough money to like kind of support my habit and stuff. But then things just escalated to a point where I couldn't work right? Because I was only focused on the drugs and then it was like I'm selling drugs and back to the stealing and back to doing whatever it is that I could, you know, whatever the ways and means were to get more. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was focused on that and I was arrested a lot. During that, mm-hmm. Right. So um, in the early 2000s-ish, basically like from 2003 until like January 2006, I was arrested, I think, 13 times. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, it was, it had gotten to the point where I was just one of those guys that, like, the police knew, right? They'd be like, uh-huh. Tegan, you know, uh-huh. so, so they'd see me, whoop, whoop, you know, pull over. Uh-huh. And, uh, all right, empty your pockets, buddy. You know, and he'd be like, why are you guys picking on me? Well, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. give them, I'd give them stuff. And, uh-huh. And I, you know, I had warrants and things and, you know, it was just, it was a really tough period in my life. It wasn't like I, some days I didn't want to live that way. Mm-hmm. And then other days I thought that was all, that was really all life had in store for me. And I was okay with that. Yeah. And, uh, um, and like, even like when I was best intention, you know, like I'll give an example, like where I was like trying to get clean. Cause I was always constantly, you know. It'd be like going hard in the paint, using a lot, and then I'd be like, "All right, I need to just try to get clean, right?" And so, like, like one time, for instance, I went up to uh, Marquette, Michigan, which is on like the banks of Lake Superior. It's where Northern Michigan University is, and I had a few friends that went to school up there. And so I went up there, and a couple of them had graduated from there and continued to live up there. And so I went up to go be with them and uh, to try to like clean up and was there for, for a couple of days, like going through withdrawals, you know, very uncomfortable, just trying to cold turkey it, you know, and, uh, um, and then, you know, faked falling down the stairs, mm. so, uh, like, you know, it's all icy and snow way up there. And so mm-hmm. I faked falling down the stairs because my friends at work, right. I'm stuck at I'm home sick while he's at work, mm-hmm. uh, being a responsible adult. And I've, uh, call an ambulance, they come and get me. I'm, you know, I'm like giving an Oscar winning performance. Um, you know, like, oh, my back, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Hoping to get whatever I can to feel, yeah, bad, you know? yeah. And then we get to the hospital, and um, the doc 
like I was like laying on the bed, like the gurney or whatever, and the curtain was kind of like half closed, and I'm like digging through like different meds and stuff in there, like trying to be discreet. But then the doc like saw me doing it, and then he like comes over and like rolls up my sleeves and sees all the track marks, and he's like, you know, really what's going on here, you know? And mm-hmm. then they kick they kick me out because they realize that there's probably nothing wrong with my back, and mm-hmm. I'm just, you know seeking opiate pain meds. They kick me out and then I like come back like on a, you know, there's like 10 inches of snow on the ground. I ride my buddy's 10 speed, you know, up back to the hospital, (laughs) you know, where I just was and they have Mm -hmm. and all this stuff. Right. Right. Cause I'm a criminal mastermind and Mm -hmm. I go back up there, lean the 10 speed against the hospital, go back up in the operating room and try to like sneak up in there and like go to like a meds cabinet. And there was like this little plastic like lock thing on it and like pop that off and start shoving whatever I can in my pockets. Mm -hmm. And when I was doing that, one of the nurses that I had eventually like saw me mm-hmm. and is like, Keegan, you know, she's like, Hey, Keegan, stop. You know? And I was like, I just like, you know, get spooked and, you know, run out of there. And they're like, Hey, stop, stop. You know? And I get in mm-hmm. my kids' feet, mm-hmm. you know, riding out there or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's, I'm laughing a little bit about it now, but I mean, it was, you know, it's also like really tragic. I would just, yeah. I just note that like the, um, I'm very reverent about my own personal recovery and it's not something that I, mm-hmm. something that is, is an integral part of my day and of my yeah. food. But like, I just, it's good for me to also like laugh a little bit about the places that, you know, it, no took, question. it, it was yeah. insane, dude. It was yeah. Like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And right. That day that was like best intentions. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like that's yeah. what it looked like. And so it was such a drag and I wasn't like, this is what I think is important is I was a good kid, I think. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I just got things got really messed up for me. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and I, I think that is a really important point. And people will debate this. In fact, most people will say bullshit. Um, but I I feel this way with every fiber of my being that of course you were a good kid. Why would you not have been a good kid? What made you a bad kid? Because yeah. you because you took a pill and that pill led to another pill and that led to an addiction. Yeah. And then you were trying like fucking hell just to be resourceful enough to not have to deal with the withdrawal and the pain, you know? Yeah. And and that's not your fault. That doesn't make you bad or wrong, you know? And, and, and sadly, I mean, that's what happens when people look at homeless people on the street or when they look at addicts or when they look at people that fuck up right now, there's, there's a fine line in there because there's some ultimately responsibility and choice involved. But I mean, when you get into the deep shit, it's tough. It is tough. You know, and I, I'm sorry, I just don't think it's that simple as like good and bad, right and wrong, you know, make the right choices or else you're bad. Yeah. You know, it's just we we've got that wrong. Yeah, no, I don't I don't know. I, the older that I get, it's there's it's less about right and wrong and more about what just what can I do today to take care of myself and others the best way that I can. You know what I mean? To like yeah. live in a loving, humble way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you decide to get help oh it was sometimes things were okay and i'm living life man i'm partying and in a hotel or whatever living it up with 
some other street urchins <laughs> and then uh or i got no place to stay and it's cold you know it's michigan and there's you know maybe i'm sleeping in an abandoned house you know or something like things got you know bad um and i had warrants like multiple warrants places even the one way up there because like, i just left town at that point uh-huh. you know, they started calling me and stuff trying to find ways to contact me and i just wasn't you know, uh, I wasn't going to go back up there and turn myself in, you know, like mm-hmm. I was busy doing other things. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't a life priority at the time, right? I just needed to get one more, you mm-hmm. know, I needed to get unsick that day. Like getting back to go serve my civil penalty for this was not a priority at all. So anyways, one day in December of 2005, I uh, was in like the, I was in a hospital and uh, I, I wasn't staying there. I just went to the hospital because it was warm inside. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, maybe, it, and I figured that they would like kick people out that they clearly won't supposed to be there. But so I like went to like the outpatient surgery ward thinking that like, maybe they'd just think I was waiting for a relative to get <laughs> out of surgery or something like that. And then I'd go mm-hmm. down to the cafeteria and I'd like steal a hamburger or mm-hmm. a sandwich or whatever and um, get something to eat. And then, I remember just like laying on that couch and being like, man, I'm just like, I had like a moment of clarity, right? Where, which was fleeting, right? Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't want to live this way, right? Mm-hmm. And I want to make a change. So I went down to the ER, which was like a couple floors down. I went to the ER and I was like, I need help, you know? And they're like, well, what? What's wrong with you? And I was like, well, and I'm like, well we can't help with that here. Mm-hmm. And so, because I'd been kind of in and out of psych wards, sometimes I would use like a psych ward so I was going to hurt myself just to get out of it, right? Mm-hmm. And so I knew that if I said that I was uh, suicidal and I was going to hurt myself, they didn't fit me. And so I like went back outside for a few minutes, came back in, and I was like, yeah, I just drank a bunch of windshield washer fluid or something like that. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they're like, okay, we'll let you in now. And then mm-hmm. it was the same way. Mm-hmm. was there before right and mm-hmm. she wanted to help so i, I mean there's nothing against her it's just she had to do a job right mm-hmm. and, um, and so she let me in you know and they're like all right let's get the charcoal out and do it. i'm like you guys don't need to do this i didn't actually mm-hmm. <laughs> like, do that but anyways they give me the charcoal and anyways mm-hmm. all this stuff anyways and uh i was there and i remember like was like laying in this bed and i remember there was this nurse who was like friends with an aunt and as i said that was big family i can't get away from mm-hmm. any of these people this nurse, she's like, I'm good friends with your Aunt Carrie. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she's like, do you want to change your underwear or whatever? And like, and I was like, you know, like, no, I was just waiting on them to change my underwear, you know? And, uh, and I had like the blue gown thing on or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, maybe I'd been there for a day already. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was like, all right, well, sure. You know, and I remember like, just like peeling these gross, Mm-hmm. like they were like you know they were like these polo tidy whiteies mm-hmm. and they were not white right like mm-hmm. i had had these things on for like three months straight exact mm-hmm. same things they were just disgusting right mm-hmm. and i had no idea mm-hmm. you know what I mean? like, that's mm-hmm. how i was how mm-hmm. bad things had gone i didn't even know mm-hmm. it was just i mean i thought i was like still you know like i'm a good looking uh-huh who does want me to take these <laughs> right 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 in your mind yeah obviously interested in me yeah yeah and uh but Uh it was just so foul i remember just being like oh man i really need help you know Mm -hmm. and uh and she i don't remember i think she said that to me too i think Mm -hmm. she was you want me to help you get into somewhere 
you know, mm-hmm. and I, and I was like, yeah, or, you know, someone eventually at the hospital was like, you know, we'll help you get somewhere you need to. And mm-hmm. then I went to a treatment center for like a few months in uh, Detroit mm-hmm. and, or, and, um, this was the worst. I'd been to some other treatment centers. This was by far, far and away the worst. I mean, the mm. least fancy. I shouldn't say the worst because mm. you know, they worked out well for me. Mm. But it was definitely the least fancy. It was like basically like an abandoned house mm. that had gotten some funding to call themselves like a you know mm. a treatment center. <laughs> and um, but it was what worked because that was kind of the you know the standard of living that I had at that point in my life, anyways. And it was above where I was at because it was like I got you know, three meals a day. And there was some good time to talk about what was going on in my life. Mm -hmm. And, uh, anyways, I did that, got out of there and, you know, it was fleeting those first few months. I'll say it was fleeting. I wasn't exactly sure all the time that that's what I wanted to do. Right. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes I still maybe just wanted to go back to using. Right. Mm -hmm. But I stayed clean long enough and gave myself like enough chance where I, I got through those first few months and then I had to face the music on some warrants that I had and took care mm-hmm. of those and had to spend a little bit of time in jail and, um, and then did like this long multi-year drug court thing that I had also where, and that's when I started college, mm-hmm. right? So this was all like in 2006, you know, I'm 20 years old. My sister, bless her heart, was like really the only one my family that would still trust me to be in their house. And she was going to law school in the Detroit area and let me sleep on her couch. And, um, and so I did that. And she was like, you know, you should think about going to college. And, uh, and I was like, I had my GI bill mm-hmm. from the Marine Corps. And so I was like, that's not a terrible idea, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I applied to a handful of undergrad colleges and I got it everywhere I applied. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is crazy, you know, because I hadn't even... Uh, I actually, I did graduate high school. So in the Marines, I did like a couple mm-hmm. courses to, we didn't have the internet. Mm-hmm. It wasn't as accessible then. So I did these like correspondence courses to finish high school. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, but I got in everywhere I applied for undergrad. And so I, uh, I lived in like a, the very first year of my undergrad, I lived in the homeless shelter for men and did like all this drug court stuff. And, you know, it was long days and a lot of, recovery intense and i had a, you know all the money that i had went to pay restitution for basically you know crimes that i committed and giving it back it was hard man it mm-hmm. wasn't i guess as part of like because that was those first couple of years were really really hard i had yeah i had negative everything negative self-esteem negative mm-hmm. you know money and it felt like i was never going to get out of it but i yeah for some reason i believed it was going to get better Well, it is a whole. I mean, you you can't take anything away from the pain and the um, holes that get dug when you are living that life. And that's part of the reason why some people, most people never get out of it because the hard that it takes to repair and just to get back to even or above water is is so hard, you know. I mean, seems- I, I give you so much credit for doing it, though. I mean, you did do that work, paying people back, working hard. You know, the negative self-image. I mean, I, the debt is one thing, right? That, but 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 to repair 
your belief system around uh, uh, who you are in the world mm-hmm. after so much shame and so much criticism and so many people telling you otherwise. Um, maybe you could just speak a little to that part. Well, like, how did you do that? I mean, I still, so like, just like I didn't have the tools to deal with hard feelings when I was young, I still didn't have them when I was now, you know, 26, 27 years old, right? Mm-hmm. And I had started undergrad and um, it was very challenging. And I had, I still had this thing where I didn't know how to deal with like these hard feelings. Um, and, uh, and I wasn't comfortable, you know, like I was going to undergrad classes with kids who are, you know, almost like 10 years younger than me. And that didn't make me feel that good. And like, even though 26, 27 years old is really, you know, in hindsight was not that old, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to be that old. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. Right. You know, like, right, right. <laughs> but to me at the time, that's how it felt. And I always felt mm-hmm. like people knew. And mm-hmm. in the beginning, you know, like they knew that I was different. They knew that I'd been like in and out of jail and like all these, you know, that I was just this bad person. Right. Mm. Like, and eventually I realized it was great in school because like I got a report card. Right. Mm. And then like, you get your grades back and I was, and I had done, I did well, you know, mm. and I had to work really hard. But I was like, man, I can maybe do this. Cause I never saw myself going to college. Right. Mm. And I was like, maybe I can do this, you know? And then, so it was like just a little bit, it was just every once in a while I could get just enough to keep mm-hmm. me going. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And mm-hmm. I was doing, I'm very involved in 12 step Mm-hmm. Um, recovery as well, right? And mm-hmm. so, like those meetings every day, and like, and, and for what's worth, it, I get a tremendous amount out of that mm-hmm. process, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What everyone does. I'm not saying it's for everybody. Yeah, it's very well for me, my own personal. It so, probably works better than anything else, um, yeah. you know. And I know people have their thoughts about it, but if you actually ever really look at twelve step, the the life lessons, the 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 work that is done there really you know everybody could do <laughs> you don't even yeah. have to be an addict yeah. to do, that work would benefit everybody yep it's like just it's basically it's like all right where are the areas that i can prove uh in who am i mm-hmm. right <laughs> and then what are the areas that i can improve what are my character assets what are my character defects mm-hmm. who do i owe some amends to and all mm-hmm. these things are constant it's not like it ends like once i go through the cycle of work and steps once like i'm always working on that i'm so mm-hmm. grateful for those tools man because it's like i make mistakes all the time still sure. right? and yeah. i can use those things and it's worked out really well when i work those things i seem to really excel at life and when i don't i get a little awky so it, mm-hmm. it's been a very useful like tool system for me in my life and it's something that is very near and dear to me to them you know uh, I realize it's an honest program, but you know, mm. no anonymity that is is generally protected. But I like I'm speaking at a convention um, next weekend in Vermont, and mm-hmm. you know I'm so excited about that. You know, like mm. any like strong relationships and friends and recovery, and uh, mm-hmm. um, another one of my good friends just celebrated you know 20 years, you know, clean sober yesterday. You know, mm-hmm. I love that dude. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. So much about doing this thing you know and right we've been on this journey of recovery together for so long together yeah and that's a really cool thing but you know anyways like you're saying it's like that was a tough mm-hmm. a very challenging period of my life and it was um but things got so much better for me i mean mm-hmm. even if i just took away the drugs things mm-hmm. were better because that was it was bad right yeah but when i threw on like rigorous recovery and giving myself 
the opportunity to try some new things. And I think this is where I really got in a habit of getting uncomfortable, mm. right? Because I was, I was forced into being uncomfortable here. And, but I just did it anyway. Like I woke mm. up every day. I was like, I'm uncomfortable being in this process. I'm uncomfortable in this particular social setting, but I would just do it anyways. And mm. eventually I realized that I could do it and everyone's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like some horrible thing happened or something like that. It wasn't always the best. It wasn't it didn't need to be. I just had to show up and do it. It didn't need to be these huge, big feelings all the time of being mm-hmm. the lowest or the highest or whatever to just you know show up and do things. And I learned to just to just be, as they say, right? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, and that was a that was so it was a, it was a tough that was a tough time. Like my undergrad was tough, and then I had all these convictions, right? So I had like six felony convictions and um, I was wise enough, I guess, to know that even if I just did my undergrad, it was going to be really hard for me to go get a job. Still. It's not mm-hmm. like something's going to be like, sure, Mr. Felony Man, like here, right. here's your job, right? Like I mm-hmm. knew that wasn't going to be the case unless I just found like the most sympathetic, wonderful human being on the planet, which mm-hmm. was going to be tough, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I figured I needed to put some more letters after my name and some more time in between me and those things. And then mm-hmm. I could start to have a story arc mm-hmm. that made sense to others too. So like I was learning about having levels of self-honesty and self-awareness through working on myself constantly. Mm-hmm. And I think that the benefit of that was me realizing those things. Right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh, well, the, you know, the world is so unfair to me. Like mm-hmm. the world was happening to me. It was that there were some things that I could do. They weren't going to be fun things, right. things, but like, Maybe if I went and got a PhD, that I could put some more time in between me and when those things happen, and mm-hmm. I give myself some more opportunity. Yeah, right. And I could learn in the process and do something mm-hmm. pretty cool, right? And uh, it just turns out that 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 assumption was true, and it gave me the yeah. some more opportunity. So I finished my undergrad. I went to get a PhD at George Washington University in Washington D.C. Um, had an amazing advisor there. Um, and he, he just the wonderful, you know, human being that supported me. I was his last student, and he mm-hmm. he unfortunately died about six months after I graduated of like an accelerated pancreatic cancer. It just took his life, you know, very quickly. But uh, um, was surrounded by the sort of people that lifted me up, and I mm-hmm. and I still look for that today. That's why I like uh, um, the group of folks that we're connected with. You know, mm-hmm. entrepreneur groups. You know, like there there's a lot of people that are like, you know, this rising shot, uh, rising tide lifts all ships mentality. Yeah. And that's what I want to be around. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I want to connect with people and help other people out, man. This life is short mm-hmm. and, uh, we're going to be way more successful. That's what we do rather than being hyper competitive with each other. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, let me, let me ask you something. And just in the interest of time, I want to connect dots to, um, sure. your current work. Um, but, one thing that I am really curious about is you've had a lot of success. You've um, you connected those dots around like, well, if I have these letters after my name and the time and the distance between being that person and then kind of redefining who I am and what people will, how they'll perceive me. And, and all of those things are very real, right? I mean, people look at people with, 
you know, PhD or letters after their name and they think of them in a certain way. Yeah. And, um, and you look at people that are felons or addicts yeah. or they look at them in a certain way. And so I, I get like why strategically you thought that would make sense. And, and it, and it, and it worked to some degree. Right. Yeah. But um, what I am curious about is if, you know, you do protect against taking the addiction and just shifting it into credentials or work or money or accolades, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and, I, and I'm just speaking from my own experience, you sure. know, that um, sure, like we talked about earlier, some are going to blow up your life more than others. Mm-hmm. But, you know, underneath it all, you know, if there's still some unresolved pain or lack yeah. of love, you know, how does that play out for you as you kind of get into your, your new version of yourself and your career and your work? Yeah. So for listeners, I mean, my life is very different today. You know, I finished my PhD, left that one time. So, um, I got into law. I uh, became barred is a miracle in and of itself and um very grateful for that and since i started my own law firm in the last few years we've been the fastest growing intellectual property law firm in the states and an amazing trajectory right um but you know today i'm not free from most things right so i still have a tendency to get um to look for things outside of myself to make me feel different, right? And uh, I think there's a natural human thing that mm-hmm. we do to that. And yes, not, like, I don't like make myself feel bad anymore for like, oh, I have this horrible burden that you know Jeremy doesn't have. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm just like, dude, it might be a great thing for me too because my life's pretty awesome, right? Right, so, right, like, right, yeah, right, right. I just don't think of it that way. This is what it is, right? And, yeah. Uh, but I, um, I'm vigilant about thinking about those things, you know, and like mm-hmm. even, even my wife it, and I have people around me that support me in my recovery, you know? So mm-hmm. like my wife now, um, maybe just a few weeks ago, her and I were arguing about something and she brought up, she was like, you know, maybe a lot. Cause I've been hyper focused on, uh, growing our LA office. Right. And I'm like, I gotta get over to LA cause I can grow up faster from there. It's a bigger city. And there's, there's, there's more money there. I can, I can, I can do more and have to travel less probably. And, uh, um, and I can help the people at the firm and all, all of these things in my head, right. I can do all the great things that I've set out to do. And she's like, you know, maybe there's an addictive element in, you know, what it is that you're thinking about right now. Mm-hmm. My, my knee jerk reaction is like, how dare you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have built this amazing thing. Mm-hmm. We're both benefiting from, but then when I give myself a minute to think, I'm also very good. So I'm grateful that I have people that care about me enough to like, to, to still bring it up when they think that something might be a little bit misaligned. And I'm surrounded by people like that. Like I have a sponsor and a network of people mm-hmm. in recovery that, that do the same thing. Um, but I, all those things are helpful for me to help identify what those, you know, areas might or might be or might not be. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then there's just, I think like a daily practice of like humility and connectedness mm-hmm. that I try to like go into that really helps me a lot. 
And it helps mm-hmm. me see that cheesy as it may seem, foo-foo as it may seem, especially for, you know, Marine and all this other crazy stuff that's happened to me. Mm-hmm. Like I, I really focus on loving all people, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I wake up from one of the moment I wake up until I go to bed, like, if it, like I wake up and I like, I'll like take a couple deep breaths and I'll like focus on like, all right, cool. I'm going to go, um, I'm going to love myself, right? Whatever that means. It's always this balance of like, you know, loving mm-hmm. others and loving others because sometimes people won't do right appropriately. And how do we resolve that? You know, right. Right. But I mean, loving people, I don't mean like going around the street and like, you know, not like a, a physical error, mm-hmm. or that, but just, you know, treating people with kindness and respect mm-hmm. and having goodwill towards others, essentially. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when that's not reciprocated or I don't get it back in a certain way, then maybe that's when the loving myself has to come in that I have to set appropriate boundaries with, you know, those folks. But uh, that's given me a lot of freedom from, uh, I guess from getting it caught up in resentments in a lot mm. of things that I use, I think that I used over for a long time. Yeah. Uh, having like deep seated resentments towards people that I carried with me. And I go, if Brett acts like this, then I can act like this. Yeah. And I just don't have that anymore. I go, yeah. I have my own code of the way that I live and it doesn't matter how other people live. I'm going to live by this code. Yeah. Well, I, I think that it's a really important you you sit in what I believe to be a really important space in that we need to hear from Marines, addicts, uh, people in recovery, very high, highly functional, successful uh, business people, um, you know, attorneys, right? And you know, right, whatever it is, we need those people talking about the importance of love, right? Because uh, there's a lot of people out there in those categories. And if they can't identify with someone, if they can't relate to someone, if they can look at Keegan and go, oh, you know, he's talking about love, you know, Um, I ought to listen, you know? Um, so I really appreciate your story and your journey and, and really like, I mean, I feel your struggle and your pain and, and, and it is so amazing, beautiful to watch the other side of what's possible. You know, uh, you really are, man, like a very inspiring story. I hope people, I know people will listen to this and, and, and I know you're out there speaking and doing a lot of stuff, but, but, um, I just want to acknowledge you for that. And, um, I appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, even today, you know, like I'm, I said, so like I'm sitting in my office, I'm on the 59th floor of, you know, the Hancock tower. It's the tallest building in Boston. I've got this other office in Los Angeles, right in the ocean, another one in Mayfair in London. Like, dude, yeah. it wasn't that long ago. I was homeless. You yeah. I mean, like, and it took like a lot of hard work and stuff. And mo- but most days it's like a lot of my own recovery stuff is because I'm like, this is nuts. Like my yeah. life is so dramatically different. Yeah. I need these really well-grounded people. I need people like you. I need people like all the other people I have in my life yeah. that uh, are supportive of my own journey to to keep going. You know. Well, and and I think you know this is the thing I'm really passionate about is just how our lives. This is why I 
tell these stories of the podcast, the whole purpose of the format is that our lives are there to inform, to educate, and to be used to create and ultimately to serve other people. Yeah. And and like so you you are uh humble. Your way of being is humility. Mm-hmm. Even if you know you forget it at times or you get caught up in the 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 yeah. chase or the whatever, right? Like that's who you are because of what you've been through, mm-hmm. you know, because of of your life. You don't want to hit anything from this glass house. <laughs> I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, I, I, I do. Thanks, like, give me, give me a few minutes. Um, I want people to know what you do and and okay. what you're doing today. And like, it's super <laughs> cool. It's like, a, I, you know, I keep having um, some better understanding of it and like a like a embodied experience. I'm like, wait a minute, this is like a whole thing. It's a whole industry, right? It's it's not like, well, I'm going to just protect my business. Like there's so much depth to it. And I think that's why you're just growing so fast and having so much success is because you're unlocking that for people. But I'll let you talk about it. Yeah. So I'll just give the quick, you know, kind of elevator pitch about this because it's dramatically different from what we've been talking about. But I somehow fell into doing intellectual property law, right? Which was just something that I learned about along the way. I certainly didn't know about it when I was a kid. And intellectual property law is a practice of law that is basically focused around helping companies or people get uh, patents on their inventions or uh, trademarks for their brands, you know, like McDonald's or Marches or, you know, Lululemon or whatever. Like those would be brands that we protect with a trademark or copyright, which is like... Mm you know, written works, songs or song lyrics or, you know, sonnets that Brett writes his wife or whatever. That we <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's mainly, that's basically what I do. But what I learned working one of my first jobs at a law firm was that there was a disconnect between getting people these uh, protections, these expensive pieces of paper for patents or for trademarks. Um, and, the, and then what is it that they're going to do with those afterwards? Mm -hmm. So there's just a large portion of folks in my career field that, and we're all basically, most people are trained in this. It's not something that they weren't trained. Um, That they're just getting these pieces. They're going, okay, well, you have an invention on this thing. I'm just going to go get you. I'll go see what the patent office says, and then I'll get back with you. Mm -hmm. Where I wanted to be able to figure out what it is that we're going to, how are we going to be able to use that patent, that trademark, your intellectual property to accomplish some other business objective, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's raising money for your company to bring more money in the door or to grow it, help grow a larger valuation for an eventual exit, you know, Mm -hmm. fail the company or an IPO or whatever it is, right? But to utilize it as a tool to accomplish some business objective. And so, I mean, that's like the very succinct version of what it is that we've done. And we've been um, fortunately very successful at it. So it was definitely more faith-based in the sense that I didn't exactly know what I was doing when I ventured out on my own. Um, And so uh, the first kind of few rounds of looking to monetize, you know, to turn people's patents or intellectual property into money was, I was hoping it made sense to me the way that I was thinking about it, but I didn't have the experience to support that. Mm-hmm. Um, but luckily, out of the gate, we did you know 
a, a big nine-figure deal for a client selling 13 patents and um, some other things for about $130 million. And, uh, and we've had a lot of other successes along the way and we work with, you know, 10 plus different unicorn clients uh, that have grown from, you know, nothing to having over a billion dollar valuations to, you know, but we're focused on working with startups, right? Like people that could just, you know, even half the unicorn people that we work with, like I knew them when they had nothing. Yeah. <laughs> like they've just yeah. grown like these amazing, they're really dynamic people that have grown these incredible businesses and we, and I feel very grateful to get to work with them, but also that uh, we've been a critical part of the journey in most cases. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. It's, 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 this is probably a whole nother podcast. Maybe we'll have you come back and talk about it. Cause I, I am fascinated with it and seeing how it unlocks really ideas. You know, I think that's the thing is that um, p- people can grow businesses and you can kind of uh, put valuations to them. And there's a lot of, you know, kind of systematic formulas for how that works. But the, 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 the real uniqueness, you know, the, the thing that somebody, you know, intellectually has created that you're protecting. Uh, I love the fact that that has real value that when protected properly can truly be monetized yeah. you know that you, like you, we we talked a little bit about this as you uh before we started recording but like you're in prison systems so you know people are able to uh have a chance yeah based on their ideas and their thinking and their creations from prison to yeah. create value i mean that's really that's really cool yeah we started getting letters from People apparently, Inc. Magazine is widely distributed in mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. prison system, and so we started to get all these letters from prisoners. And we had really no intention of starting like a pro bono program for prisoners, but uh, um, we got a couple letters that were just like they just spoke to me. You know, some of them were just kind of like nothing that was that moving, or it was a little scammy, or you know, there was some weird stuff going on with it. Mm-hmm. But there was just a couple that was like you know, like one guy that was like just worried about his grandmother. And like he used to help her take her meds and he doesn't know if she's taking them. So they like came up with this way, like an app that's also tied to like a medication dispensing device for monitoring that she takes her medicine and um, knows when and then it automatically orders new prescriptions. And there's a video image of her making sure that she takes her meds and all this stuff. And, uh, um, and he was also just an entrepreneur and uh, kind of in the wrong place, wrong time, wrong, you know, just, knew one way how to make money growing up and that was selling drugs and he's got a long prison sentence because of it and uh, we wanted to uh and he wanted to make you know a better the world a better place and to take care of people that he loved and mm. that made sense to us and so we've been helping him out we got him a patent we're working on a second one mm-hmm. uh, we're getting ready to start working with a few other uh, people in the prison system and it's been a really rewarding oh, i bet this patent yeah. is not the most altruistic of uh yeah <laughs> you know things to get into as i'm sure you can you see a lot of things about lawsuits getting thrown around but this is just yeah. near and dear to us it's super cool yeah yeah all right keegan i'll let you go thank you thank you for telling your story thanks for living the way you are and doing what you're doing for so many other people now and uh yeah it's good to know you and call your friend and uh um, yeah, yeah lots more to come yeah grateful for it yeah thanks brett i appreciate it man okay take care Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak. 